The phrase, you can't have your cake and eat it too, originated in England in the early 1500s. And one of the things I love about uh, looking up uh, these idioms and phrases is discovering other idioms and phrases that are similar. So it turns out that there's an old Albanian proverb that means the same kind of thing. You can't go swimming and not get wet. Or a German, a German proverb, which I asked the one real German I know we have in our congregation uh, after last service, and it's true, this is a German proverb, which says, you can't dance at two weddings at the same time. Same idea. In other words, you have to make a choice. You can't, ha- you can't both have your cake and eat it too, because if you eat your cake, you no longer have your cake. That one you have to work a little harder at, but if I have my cake, I'm going to eat it. So. There are some things in life that demand a choice, and you can't have it both ways. We all have choices that come to us every day, choices between right and wrong, good and bad, good and better, better and best. And an awful lot of those choices, we know that we just can't have it both ways, right? Some, some choices are of very little consequence. Other choices are pro- quite profound in their consequences. In, in 1999, the film The Matrix came out. Now, some of you are going, boy, he's dating himself now. 21 years ago. Yeah, you could see it that way. You could see that I'm dating myself, right, Nick? Sounds like I'm dating myself. But I'm not. I'm really just way ahead of the curve because they're making the fourth one and it's coming out next year. So I just look very, you know, ahead of pop culture here. I digress. Uh, The Matrix came out, was an incredibly powerful film, and immediately what I noticed, and I'm guilty of this too, and I'm doing it today, is a lot of pastors and preachers and teachers took the central premise of the Matrix film and then used it to talk about, used it as a metaphor to talk about the spiritual realities that are at work in the universe. And I remember going to see this film Uh, in the theater, and I was terrified. The first 30 minutes or so, I was like, what is going on? I don't think I can stand this for two hours. I don't don't know what's going to happen next. It's like there are no rules in this film. However, eventually, it was at a certain point, the, the viewer, along with the protagonist, Neo, comes to realize that things are not what they appear. We've all been duped into living a lie, and the only way to step out of that lie and into the truth was to make a choice. And so Neo is given that very choice when Morpheus says to him, like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell, taste, or touch. A prison for your mind, Unfortunately, no one can be told what the matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, and the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, and you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Neo could either take the blue pill or the red pill, but he could not take both pills. He had to make a choice. One choice, the more painful, the more difficult, the more costly of the two, it turns out, was the one that would lead to truth. The other was to maintain the status quo. Neo chose the red pill, or else we wouldn't have a movie. 
He chose the red pill, which not coincidentally led to his own death and resurrection. Sorry for the spoiler. The choices we see at play in this morning's passage fall into the more profound category of choices. The choices that we see, the choice that we see put before the man whom we call the rich young ruler, the disciples, and Jesus himself, the choices in, in today's passage is about whether to be first or last. Whether to be first or last. But Jesus knows, and everyone else will find out, that they can't have it both ways. They can't have their cake and eat it too. They can't go swimming and stay dry, and they can't dance at two weddings at the same time. This takes us to our good news for this week, and it's right out of Mark 10, 31. In Christ, the last shall be first. In Christ, the last shall be first. And in Mark 10, 17, we are introduced to a young man who runs to Jesus, falls at his knees, and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in my experience, most of us, if not all of us in this room, we hear him asking how he will get to heaven when he dies. What does he have to do to get to heaven when he dies? But while that is certainly included in what we've come to know and understand as the life of faith, to hear only that is to read into his question something a bit different than he likely meant. For Jewish people at that time, there were two ages. There was the present age and there was the coming age. They lived, of course, in the present age. They awaited the age to come. And in the age to come, God would reign over all of the earth, not just off in some abstract, distant heaven somewhere, heaven on earth. It's, this, it's very similar to the thing that we mean as Christians when we talk about the new heavens and the new earth. So when this man says he wants eternal life, he means that he wants the life that belongs to eternity, the life that will be the way things are lived in the age to come. The other phrase that's sometimes used... Uh, to refer to that, that, that same kind of life, that idea, is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The, the, the two phrases overlap quite a bit. And, and let's not forget that while we cannot get to heaven until we die, we can enter into the kingdom of God and into eternity itself while we're still living here now. Put it another way, eternity is now in session. And we can see this inter interchange of the, of the two phrases in the fact that when the man turns away sad in the passage because he, he can't sell all he ha has and, and give the money to the poor, Jesus turns and begins to talk to his disciples about eternal life, but he switches it uh, to the kingdom of God. Verse 23 reads, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He, he changes the phrase. The kingdom of God is something that is entered into now in this life, and it goes on for eternity. Life in the kingdom of God is not something we have to wait for. It is something we get to experience even now if we want to. And, and those who have great wealth, Jesus says, will find this a very hard thing to do, to enter into that kingdom. Why? Well, Jesus doesn't really tell us why. He doesn't answer that question. We can look at the way the, the rich young ruler responded, and we can say, we can understand some reasons what, what is going on, because he walks away sad. All we really know, though, is, is that while he was a good man, a moral man, a man who had kept many of the Ten Commandments, this rich young man had not kept them all. The man's question of how he could in, to the man's question of how he could inherit eternal life, Jesus answers, You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man says that he's kept all of these commandments since he was young. But, 
Jesus hasn't listed out all of the Ten Commandments. To be clear, there are 613 commandments in the law, but the Ten Commandments was a way to kind of encapsulate all those. and talk, this, is, this is what they mean. And Jesus has not listed all of the Ten Commandments. He's only mentioned five of them. The five he leaves out are the commandments to put God first, to have no idols, not to use the Lord's name in vain, to keep the Sabbath, and not to covet another's possessions or spouse. All of the commandments Jesus leaves out, in some way, I would argue, others would argue, speak of putting God first in our lives. By the man's turning away from Jesus, he shows that he has, in fact, broken these other commandments. He has not put God first. His wealth and his possessions have become idols. He has dishonored God's name in these things, and his great wealth may, in fact, testify to his covetousness. And if Jesus' omission of Sabbath-keeping in the list indicates that he didn't keep Sabbath either, well, there too we see that he has failed to put God first. He has not honored the Sabbath. He has not kept the Sabbath holy. So instead of resting and trusting in God on the Sabbath and refusing to work because he trusts in God, maybe this man worried and worked and tried to make money instead. Maybe he dishonored the Sabbath and thus dishonored God. Whatever we do with the Sabbath, it is clear by the end of the story that this man holds on to his wealth and his possessions and that they have become his idols. And in the end, he chooses the blue pill. Tomorrow morning, he will wake up in his bed and nothing will have changed. He can believe whatever he wants to believe. Life will go on. He will be first in the eyes of many, but he will be last in the life of God's kingdom. One of the things I think that Jesus is showing us, showing this man and showing all of us, is that it is possible technically to obey an awful lot of the commandments and still fail to put God first in your life. It is possible to obey, technically, all the commandments, but still fail to put God first in our lives. And that is true for him and for all people everywhere and at all times and places. This, this man was holding on to his wealth, but for you and me, it might be something else we hold on to. It might be wealth for us too, of course, because wealth and possessions have a power of us that, that is seductive for an awful lot of humankind. But it may also be something else we're unwilling to let go of, some, some other idol to which we bow down which we place above God. The question for all of us then as we encounter this story is what is it that keeps us from Jesus? What is it that keeps us from Jesus? What, what do we need to lay down? What do we need to let go of in order to more fully experience the kingdom of God life that God in Christ has come to offer us? Here is a man who was in first place in the eyes of society. He had it all, but he came in dead last when it came to putting God first in his life. So he goes away sad because he couldn't take that last all-important step, thus proving that he was not ready to follow Jesus and inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Let me stop right there. Some of you may have heard a long time ago that the eye of the needle was the name of a gate in Jerusalem that was short, and the camels could go through it if they got down on their knees and they crawled through. Not true. Never existed. That was invented by some rich guy in the 8th century who was trying to justify his existence. Doesn't happen. 
It is the eye of a needle. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, then who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? The disciples were amazed, a word that carries with it the sense of astonishment and fear. They are astonished at his words because that is not how they understood things or the way things worked in the world, the way God worked in the world. To their way of thinking, this man's wealth actually proved that he was already blessed by God. There should be no question, no doubt at all, whether or not he will enter into the kingdom. He's already blessed. He must be doing it right. So they ask in great fear, if this guy can't get in, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And so we have a little bit of hope. But then Peter, again, likely getting something a bit wrong here, as he often does. Peter speaks up in verse 28. He says, we have left everything to follow you. And it's not too much of a stretch to hear in his question an inherent question, what will we get out of the deal? This guy couldn't do it. We left it all. What, what's in it for us? And Jesus then makes this extraordinary promise. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, fields. A hundred times what they left behind to follow him. He says, in the here and now and in the age to come. There's that language again. In the present age and in the age to come. Oh, and by the way, he adds, even with all of that, there will still be persecution along the way. There's still more cross-carrying yet to do. But what does all of this mean? Homes, fields, brothers, mothers, children, a hundred times? Is this some kind of health and wealth gospel? Well, in a manner of speaking, yes, it is. But it's likely, it's going to look different than how most of us picture it, how some televangelists might tell, it, tell us it should look. This isn't about becoming independently wealthy or name it and claim it. This is about becoming a part of the, the family of God, the body of Christ, for now we have each other. Now we share in each other's wealth, too. Now we have community. We have become a part of something much bigger and much wealthier than we would ever have been able to attain on our own. Now, mi casa is su casa. We share things. I'm wanting to plant a great garden this year. I've decided I'm going to do this perfectly. I've, we took out a tree, we have sunlight, here we go. We're getting it, we're throwing stuff in there all winter long. To get it ready, I had to till it up. I don't have a tiller. But I have a brother named Jan Hobbs who lives across the fence who has a beautiful tiller. <laughs> Jan, if you're listening, he's in Florida right now. I'm just, you know, I'll be borrowing it again soon. I don't have to own the tiller. I can borrow the tiller because he's my brother. I am wealthier than I would have been without being in the body of Christ. The same is true of all sorts of things. We also have each other. We are family. Brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, children. We all come together as a community. Then Jesus summarizes what they've just witnessed in verse 31. Many who are first will be last, the last first. Including in the last becoming first, of course, is Jesus himself. He's, he goes on. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus, leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Like, this is a whole other sermon here. 
I just like noticed that this morning as I was rereading it. There are other people. The disciples are astonished, but there are those who are following who are afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is the third time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has predicted his own death and resurrection. Now, as we enter into Mark 11 next week, we, we enter into the last week of Jesus' life, the, the Passion Week, where Mark spends almost half of his gospel. Almost half of Mark's gospel is spent in the last week of Jesus' life. We will spend the entire season of Lent, six weeks, in this section of Mark. As we said earlier, we will officially begin Lent with our Ash Wednesday service on Wednesday evening. And as a way for us to be more intentional in, in prayer and reflection during the season of Lent, as we make our way toward Easter, we invite you to sign up for our Lenten text. You can sign up on your phone by just texting the, the phrase at ECC Lent 20. The at sign ECC Lent 20 to that number 81010. And when you do that, you'll be enrolled and we'll text you a prayer or reflection of some kind each weekday running through Easter. And that information is also in your bulletin. But here in Mark 10, Jesus tells them, what is going to happen to him in the days to come? The first, the Son of God, the first shall become the last in his death on the cross. And the last shall become the first when he rises from the dead. But James and John are still stuck on the promise of what they'll receive for following Jesus. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's always fun to figure out how Jesus said this. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but... To sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. If the first shall be last and the last shall be first, Lord, let us sit next to you on your throne, for we have given up everything to follow you too. Jesus offers James and John the red pill. They still seem intent on taking the blue but as we saw last week, before they can get to the glory of the resurrection, before they can begin to experience the age to come, there is still the way of the cross on which they must walk. They will still have to drink the cup of suffering and wrath. They must still go through the baptism by fire that awaits Jesus along the way. And then the other ten of them get wind of this special request. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. While we may certainly understand the way the rest of these disciples responded to James and John and their request, 
The truth is, by their complaints, they are merely showing that they have the same attitude as James and John. The rest of the disciples are only angry because James and John got there first. Look, you're all wrong here, Jesus says. You're all called to live differently and to view life differently than the rest of the world. You're you're not to be like those who lord it over others, the rich, the powerful, the privileged. No, you are to be like me. For Jesus is the perfect example of the first becoming last. We must serve one another and others. We must be willing to be the slave of all. For even Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The call to discipleship is a call to serve, to to lay down our lives, to, to give of ourselves. And when we do, we become something other than what we appear to be. We may appear to be the last and the least in the world, but in God's kingdom, in fact, we are the first. We have stepped into a new reality, a reality that has been there all along, but now we can see it from the inside by becoming the last, by becoming the servant of all, we begin to flesh out the kingdom of God in our lives, in our relationships, and in our world. To be sure, making the hard choices in life as a follower of Jesus is not easy. It may even be costly, as we talked about last week and what it means to carry our crosses, to deny ourselves. But before we get to how we can respond to the good news that in Christ the last shall be first, I I want us to notice just a couple of lines in our passage that put things into perspective. First, go with me back to the beginning of our passage. After the rich young man has asked the question and has boasted of his obedience to five of the Ten Commandments, and just before Jesus asks him the very hard thing to sell everything, to give it all away, note what it says in verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus doesn't look at this man to scold him, to reprimand him, to judge him, and he does not look at you or me that way either. He looks at us and loves us. Before he asks for sacrifice in the laying down of our lives, he loves us. He loves you. He wants the best for you. And the best for you, the best for us, is to let go of whatever stands in the way of us coming to know God and to follow Jesus and to pursue God's purposes in the world. Even as we may be called upon to make some difficult choices in response to God's calling in Christ, let us remind ourselves first and foremost that Jesus loves us. He loves us. Let's start there. Second, let's jump on down to verse 27, where Jesus encourages his astonished and fearful disciples and us by reminding us that as hard as it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. There's hope for us all. What would normally be hard or even impossible for us to do is Mere human beings is possible with God. Why? Because first of all, the grace of God is a gift to us. The offer of forgiveness and salvation is a gift to us, a free gift. We don't have to work to receive that. And second of all, because once we have done that, once we've entered into that relationship with Christ, God's Holy Spirit lives within us and empowers us to do the hard things, even the seemingly impossible things. So how are we to respond? Really, the only thing we can do in response to the promise that in Christ the last will be first, is to surrender all that we are to Him, to choose to be last. 
And so if you have not yet come to that place of naming Christ as Lord of your life, of, of receiving the grace of forgiveness He freely offers us all, there is no better time than now. And today, as the old Chinese proverb says, the best time to plant a tree was 50 years ago. The second best time, today. Let today be the day you lay down your life and surrender all of it to God. Do not, do not be like the rich young man in Mark 10. Let nothing stand in your way knowing that in Christ, the last shall be first. Or maybe you've already made that initial choice to receive the gift Christ offers, but there are areas you're still holding on to because you're, you're afraid to let go of them. Maybe, as I said, it is, it is wealth or anger or pride or lust or a bad relationship. Our idols can be made of many things, sisters and brothers. We, we can have many idols. What, what are you holding on to this morning that, that God is asking you to let go of? As we close, let's go to prayer first in, in a moment of silence, but then I invite you, as we sing our closing songs, to, to make these songs your prayer, your choice, your decision, if it's not too corny, to take the red pill, to serve God and others, to be the last and the least of all, to be a part of the coming of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And if, if in, this, uh, in responding to this good news, if you are ready to make the step of expressing faith in Jesus for the first time and you would like someone to pray with you, please come down. I would be happy, honored to pray with anybody. Or you can make a note on the back of the communication card. Just check the box that says you want to know more about what it means to know and follow Jesus and we'll get in touch with you. Would you join with me in a moment of silence and then I will close this in prayer. God, I lift up to you all those who are present here this morning. <clears throat> you know their hearts. You know where they are. I pray for any who might be among us who have never taken that step of faith of entering into uh, the kingdom, that you would give them the grace to reach out